0: i Ulrich, in-house counsel for the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In this episode, We the People host Jeffrey Rosen sits down with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute in Boston. They discuss the First Amendment. Hate Speech, The Citizens United Decision, and Other Free Speech Cases. Let's hear what they had to say.
1: Justice, welcome to the Senate. Uh, This is the chamber that you helped to create. You've talked about your time with Senator Kennedy, and you've talked about how impressed you were that you and your counterparts from the Republican side would get together to discuss substantive policy policy ideas. Tell the audience why, when you were there, you think the Senate worked.
2: Well, we were there, weren't we? Senator Kennedy wanted it to work, and and so did the others. So when I started as chief counsel, I'd been teaching at Harvard, and and I came down there. and, And the first thing he did is he brought me into Alan Simpson's office. You know, and said, "Alan, if you have any problems with the Judiciary Committee, call Steve." And he meant it. So he introduced me to the Republicans, as well as the Democrats, and the thing was supposed to work. Every morning, Ken Feidberg, who was on, you know, working with with me, and and uh, uh, Emery Sneedon, who was Thurman's chief person, every morning we would meet for breakfast, and we'd plan the day. Uh, was there no surprises. Uh, uh, try to paint this good bill this way so a Republican can vote for it and that way so a Democrat so we can get it through. Because Kennedy wanted accomplishment. That's what he wanted. Uh, all the judges that were nominated, we confirmed 200 Carter judges. And uh, everyone was investigated jointly by Duke Short, who was Thurman's staff person, and Burt Wides, or originally uh, Carmine Bellino, who was Bobby Kennedy's investigator. And where uh, they wrote a joint report, I don't think they ever disagreed. And uh, you know, sometimes they agreed that we shouldn't confirm this first, and I won't go into that. But, they, but the, the, uh, uh, that's just the way it was. It wasn't 100% perfect, but it worked pretty well. And you say, well, how, why aren't we there? I don't know. When I say and I'm asked that, I say, well, what happens now? Uh, it's no so partisan and everything. I say, well, I would start, this is not a very nice thing to say, so if I say one thing by not too nice, I say try looking in the mirror because my experience with the Senate was they'll do what they think their constituents want, not 100%, but you know, so let's calm down. And, but I don't know I have the answer to that. I don't. So I do have a cup, though, and this cup was given to me by my law clerks a few years ago. I would always quoting Senator Kennedy. It was so great working for him. I mean, he made life fun. You know, it was, it was serious. He wants achievement, but it was fun. And, and uh, don't take yourself too seriously. So we have seven things on there written, which he used to say, but I think the two most important were one, the, 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 the best is the enemy of the good. He certainly believed that. And the other is don't worry about the credit. Now that he really believed in. He said credit is a weapon. And you have a choice between, you know, making an inch of progress and being the national hero in dissent. Hey, make the progress. Make the progress. The credit is the weapon. And how do you do it? Well, listen to what the other person, what a good idea you have. What a good idea you have. Let's see if we could work with that. That's Kennedy. That's what he was. And uh, when it would come the time for uh, the thing passes, and he used to say, look, don't worry about it, because if, if, if it's a good project, there'll be, plenty of pro- there'll be plenty of credit to go around. And if it's bad, who wants the credit? <laughs> and, and uh, uh, he, he, I saw him do this you know uh, somebody on the other side has voted with him and they put something together here that works when the press is around he pushes the other person out he was so helpful on this he was so helpful you know well, that's what it was, and and every day I used to get in my bicycle. I'd come in at seven in the morning. I'd try, I just loved it, because <laughs> you know there's something going on every second, and and uh, it was fun. It was fun, and we also that's he'd give you, me, namely, time if you're making progress. He had a pretty competitive staff, and uh, you're not making progress. Goodbye. I'll do something else. That was his view, and you make some progress. Okay, okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the world I know as it is now, but it was, it was an awfully good time for me. I enjoyed being there. It was really wonderful. And I miss him. And, of course, everybody who knew him misses him. Everybody.
1: Well, thank you for having helped to create this superb educational institution. And you just said something very interesting. You said if we're going to solve this problem of democracy, people have to look in the mirror. So they have to be guided by reason rather than passion. They have to be educated about the sources of the Constitution. And our job tonight is to talk about the First Amendment. And you have a very important view of the First Amendment that I want you to talk about in a sec. But first, I want you to tell the audience why it is that the Supreme Court, by nearly unanimous majorities, has said, at least ever since the 1960s, that speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. Where does that principle come from, and why is it important?
2: Well, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm talking to a group of students, I would say the first thing to remember in this First Amendment, I'm not the world's expert on the First Amendment. You have a few people coming up in a few minutes who are pretty good experts, but we do have cases on it, so I have to know about it. But the, if I say this one principle that, 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 that I want the, the high school students to know, and the grammar school students too, the college students, it really is, at least as it's come to be in so the last hundred years, it's there for people whose speech you don't like. And it's so tempting to say. That's Voltaire, it isn't really Voltaire. You know, Voltaire supposedly said, and I think I tried this once and some expert wrote in and said he didn't really say that. <laughs> but nonetheless, He says, I, 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 can't, I don't like what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That's a great line, I mean, like many other lines should have been said. And, and uh, that's the theme. So when the Nazis, even that, my god, the Nazis, you know, uh, demonstrating in uh, Skokie, yeah, 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 even that. And, uh, well, suppose you yell fire in the crowded theater, we know you can't do that. If you're going to solicit a crime, you can't do that. If you're going to go and uh, say something that's going to lead somebody and you know it and want it to go hit somebody else in the face, No. You're talking an idea, you're talking a thought, you're talking, yeah, can that do harm? Yeah, it can do harm. The speech can do harm. Of course it can. But the view that we've had is the greater harm is to put somebody up as a censor to decide when it goes too far. There'll be some, I mean, you have to say, with a crowd in the theater, you know, fire in a crowded theater, but but, uh, within the range of viewpoints, We consider that the greater harm and uh, not every country does. I was in Canada uh, about two months ago and they were having a discussion of this subject and in Canada, no, they they think it's a great idea. You can, in fact, censor hate speech, for example. It was too far. But then I say, well, I'm not used to that because that is not our environment. So I start thinking about what is the difference between Canada and here? I think this is my imagination. But I think Canada, people agree with each other an awful lot. My mother used to say, you know, there's no view so crazy, there isn't somebody in this country who doesn't hold it. And uh, she, we lived in San Francisco. She said they all live in Los Angeles. But, but, but not, 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 not nonetheless, you see the point. And that is, the, uh, I guess, the, the miracle I see in my job every single day. I see people of every possible point of view, every race, every religion, and they've come into a courtroom uh, and uh, uh, have, that holds them together. They will solve their problems that way. They won't solve their problems by murdering each other. And we want to see the other just turn on the television set. And 320 million people of all kinds of views. Oh my goodness. I said, you know, I, I, I lived in Boston a long time. I grew up in San Francisco. I lived here for. 40 years or more, and, and uh, so I didn't go to high school here, which makes me difficult to accept, but, 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 but still, but still. Uh, all right, and I'd seen differences, but nothing until I got to Washington. There are differences. I wasn't aware of that, our first reaction. Why doesn't everybody agree with me all the time, who I'm so reasonable? <laughs> but but uh, after a while, I thought, that isn't such a terrible thing. It's a very big country. People have very different views. And uh, the important thing is hold them together and this Constitution, which I have in my pocket because I use it, people ask about it, it holds people together. And uh, that's great. And one of the things I think that's important is let them say what they want. We don't like it, we'll try to convince them they're wrong. Try to convince them they're wrong. And they are a lot of them, (laughs) But, but still. But still, I mean that's the theory. So I say Canada, hey, that's like with Jack Kennedy. It suddenly thought of that, he said to Harold McMillan, and Harold McMillan at the, the Blue Streak missile. they were in uh, Bermuda discussing that when he was first in office, and they were talking about the Blue Streak missile. and after they are talking together, and Kennedy supposed, uh, Dick Newstadt told me that, so it's probably true, he said, he said to Harold McMillan, well, what are you gonna do about your budget, just making conversation? He says, well, we're gonna do this and that, and then it'll be this and that, and he said, but yeah, but what will Parliament say? And McMillan said, Parliament? Parliament? He said, we control the majority in Parliament and they'll do what we say. And Kennedy turned to him and said, well, he said, anyone could run a country like that. (laughs) (laughs) So so that, that, that sort of occurred to me as a difference when I was listening to this in Canada.
1: You just said something very important. You said the difference between the U.S. and Canada and Europe also where hate speech is regulated is that there people tend to agree and here we vigorously disagree. And many Supreme Court opinions, including by our mutual hero, Justice Louis Brandeis, have said that in America, the final end of the state is to make people free to develop their faculties, and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. What has the Supreme Court said about why it's important, when people vigorously disagree, that the best response to evil words is good words, and that counter speech is better than suppression?
2: Well, one one reason is a very practical reason. If you're going to start suppressing speech, particularly on the basis of the point of view, even if it's a hateful point of view, who's going to do it? And uh, therefore, you risk setting up a board of censors. And I I rather like the the two ideas that i put in my opinions, which I've taken from others. I mean, one is, uh, of course, the marketplace of ideas that we think if you allow every point of view and don't have the censorship, eventually reason will prevail. But I I did like uh, Newborn's book because he says, well, look at that First Amendment. It's, uh, it's It's a transmission belt. See, first, people think. They can think what they want. That's the religion clauses, which in those days was really ideology and and was really what you want to think inside your head. And uh, from there you go to speech, which is we express it. And we think about it, and then we express it. And then there is the press, which helps transmit it to other people. And then there is petition, because the point of a lot of this is to get to our public representatives. And then uh, the idea, it's not that that marketplace of ideas is out there just idly spinning away. The idea is for a lot of speech, not all, and not even for all protected speech, but for a lot of speech, the idea is that we will gather people, we will get supporters, we will get our views across in a marketplace which will build a public opinion that will be transmitted into action. I say that is a theory of government. And I think for a hundred years, it's been our theory of government. And uh, uh, maybe it won't work. That's what I also, it's an experiment. And we hope it will. We hope it will. I mean, you go back into history, we've had a civil war. We've had slavery. We've had uh, segregation. We've had all kinds of things. It's a roller coaster. And what I want the students to understand is you're never, never, are you self-satisfied? You can't be. It's always an experiment. And that's why the founders said that. Washington said that. Lincoln says that at Gettysburg. Read that. Why does he want this war to be won? Because he wants to show the experiment will work. And if the country breaks up, it didn't. And uh, so there we are. I'm just trying to energize them, you see. <laughs> I'm trying to energize them say, hey, hey go, go to the Constitution Center <laughs> and uh, listen to what people are saying and learn something about this heritage.
1: The marketplace of ideas metaphor comes from Holmes. Yes. He was pessimistic about truth prevailing. He was a nihilist. He thought the strong should crush the weak through words. Brandeis was more idealistic, that given the chance to hear all points of view, reason would prevail. Which are you in your theory of free speech? Optimistic or pessimistic?
2: I'm always optimistic because there isn't much of a choice. <laughs> I mean, my my father, who's rather a pessimist, would say, it's nice to be a pessimist because you're always pleasantly surprised. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think you have to be optimistic about it. And I I just, two out three hours ago, I was in Washington talking to a group of students from New York, many of whom were Muslim women, and they're in some special program, and they're not there from a lot of different places. And 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 again, I did refer to Senator Kennedy, and I I said, well, what do you learn? And just Arthur Goldberg, whom I was clerked for, uh, keep going. I mean, Goldberg used to say that, he'd say, uh, keep going. I mean, you you get depressed, you get gloomy, you say, I'm never gonna, well, what's your choice? Say, oh, how awful. Or, you keep going, and and that was uh, Arthur Goldberg's view, just keep going, go to the next one, go to the next one. And I think that was Kennedy's view. Keep going. And uh, that's what I say. uh, And sometimes I don't like that because it's so depressing when I'm feeling depressed. But then I think of that and I say, hey, come on. Come on, we just keep going.
1: Good. You're like Brandeis, optimistic. Given time, reason will prevail. Now, you have a very distinctive approach to the First Amendment, and it's unlike any of your colleagues. And I want you to set it out. Now, you have argued that the value of speech should be balanced against its social costs and that rather than being categorical, judges should be reasonable. Tell us more about what that balancing that is not
2: frame. my view of speech. And number first thing you learn in that place, if you say I'm the only one who has it, I'm sunk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the point is but people are interested in is not the Constitution according to me or according to Sandra O'Connor or someone else. What they're interested in and should be interested in is what's the court's view. And uh, the court has a, It doesn't settle completely in every area. I, I would say that, that, that what I th- think, in terms of the cases that I've had to read and go back and read it over history, that I find, you, you know, that there is. A, and this is so much a question of temperament, it isn't really a question of politics. There are those who want clear rules. And in questions, there are many, many issues that come in front of us where the real question, which no text tells us, no answer to this is given in a treatise, but how how rule-based are you? How long-term do you decide the issue? How much do you write it based on these facts? How much do you write it sort of hesitant? And and I'm more in the hesitant school, because I think life is a mess. And you go and uh, 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 write to something too definite for the indefinite future, it'll come back and hit you in the face. So probably that was one of the big differences where I would differ with Nino Scalia. It was that he likes rules. He's happier with rules. He wants a black letter rule. I don't. I mean, sometimes I do, because you have to sometimes. But I'm, I'm more on the careful... Uh, it'll come and hit you in the face. So th- that is uh, the kind of problem that people have in terms of their attitude. So in free speech, we'll say, well, there are, uh, you know, there are, there are three levels of speech. Uh, there is like political speech, and uh, that really gets strong protection, and there's commercial speech, which gets medium protection, and uh, there is uh, uh, economic regulatory speech where you're trying to regulate uh, natural gas or something and so you tell them how, how much, what they have to say in the uh, bill that they send to the customer. All right, Brandeis would have said that gets the lease protection. No, oh, I think that's right, but beware of that. I will treat them more like a stop sign, green, yellow, red. And you say, well, that doesn't tell you too much. I know what a stop sign is, but it doesn't say anything. I say, exactly, exactly. They're just telling you be cautious or be very cautious, or hey, let the legislature alone. But then there's spin off other rules and I get nervous about those. So I probably, and others will do this too, I'm sure John Stevens was exactly in the same kind of mode and uh, so is, uh, they're all people who this to some degree. Probably Ruth is to some degree. You'd have to read through a lot of her opinions to know. It's a temperamental question, a question of temperament. But I, say, I think in the tough cases that we have, you're not going to get too far through this classification. And you're going to have to end up doing something that, in one form or another, we do. We call it first you look to I can't, you know, like, like the four part test. Okay. Call it a four-part test. I say what they're doing when they say a four-part test or a three-part test, particularly in the speech area, is what people are doing, what the judges are doing, is they're sitting there and saying, what reason is there for trying to regulate this? Is the reason because you, you want to, uh, uh, you think by regulating what the physician or what the druggist can tell the, the uh, pharmaceutical company, you will produce lower prices Is the reason you're regulating it because there's a national emergency and you think that uh, you don't want people uh, sending messages to terrorists or something? I mean, what's your reason? And then when you see the reason, you look to see uh, how much does it hurt speech? I mean, maybe it's just a side issue of the speech, that isn't what they're regulating. And are there less restrictive alternatives? That's the kind of questions that go into a form of balancing. Call it whatever you want. Call it applying rules, but I don't think it really is. I think a lot of the time judges are sitting there trying to figure out what the underlying uh, problem is, what the underlying uh, issues are, cutting in different directions, and then being very aware of the need for this First Amendment to uh, particularly protect political speech and certain other where it's idea based, and the lesser need where what you're trying to do is regulate drug prices.
0: And now for a brief break. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for select America's town hall programs. Credit is available for both in-person events and on-demand courses. Visit constitutioncenter.org CLE for more information.
1: Well, we can call it a pragmatic approach because that's what it is. And you've just described the Sorel case involving drug prices and pharmaceuticals and you described your position, and you were in the dissent. And your colleagues in the majority wanted a more categorical approach and said that commercial speech was protected. You are concerned that a more categorical approach for commercial speech might lead to the court striking down all sorts of other economic regulations down the line. Tell us about this. It's
2: the not just economic. Re- I mean, I, uh, uh, Sorrell is an interesting case, because what it was uh, was the following. Uh, the state of Vermont thought that drug companies who will go to pharmacists and find out from the pharmacist what drugs are being described, prescription drugs, by different doctors in the state, then will know how to send their salesmen to these doctors, knowing that the doctor is using uh, prescription drug number X. And they say, oh, wouldn't you like to try Y? You see, which is ours, and it's patented and they thought that that was a cause for raising prices. Well, naturally, the way I've been brought up in the law, I would think that's a good reason. Nothing wrong with that. And does it hurt speech? Very little. It hurts the pharmacists, I mean, a little bit, but not much. And is there a less restrictive way of doing it? I couldn't think of one, and nor could the briefs, at least in my view. So I said, fine, it's okay. It's okay, that's a commercial reason. It's, a, it's a, an economic reason and therefore it's okay. Now my colleagues did not agree with that and I think Brandeis would have agreed with it. We both like Brandeis <laughs> so he, he, and I think that's what he would have said. And, and uh, uh, so it's very dangerous uh, to use these rules if these rules are going to end up uh, dismantling, this is what I said in the opinion, uh, economic regulation. Because it's important for the government to be able to regulate. And all human life is carried on through speech, including regulation. So you have to have some distinctions there. But uh, that was what I wrote in that opinion, I have to say, uh, to justify my... So the same, just about the same day, there was a case involving an anti-terrorism act, and the anti-terrorism act said that you cannot give aid to a terrorist. And a terrorist was defined as a person or group on a list that the Secretary of State keeps. And uh, the question was a retired administrative law judge wanted to help the Kurds, uh, who were on that list, their group, uh, by teaching them how peacefully to petition the United Nations. Well, I thought that's protected by the First Amendment. applying the same kind of system but my colleagues, a majority, did not. I don't know how helpful that is. <laughs> You'll get more from the panel.
1: It's extremely helpful, and it also reminds us uh, about a case that I know everyone uh, is uh, eager for your thoughts about, and that is Citizens United. You were in dissent in Citizens United, and you think Brandeis would have been too. Tell us why you think it was wrong and what the consequences are.
2: Well, it's, it's not just... first people use Citizens United as a symbol for the court's reluctance or the striking down of campaign finance laws. In my own opinion, the later case of McCutcheon goes much further. I mean, it's, it's uh, it, where I did dissent in greater length. But, but I, I think that the, the Citizens United really was about whether labor unions and corporations uh, can be forbidden to contribute to a candidate uh, appearing on television in the last few months of the campaign uh, you see when uh when other people can do it or can 't do it what special rules for labor unions and corporations and the the majority said. No, you can't have these special rules. I thought you could have these special rules. Okay, so there we are. But the more important one is the later one of McCutcheon, and I'd say the more important one too is a sentence in Buckley versus Valeo in 1974 upholding campaign finance regulation. But it says you cannot regulate in one sentence. It seems to say that you cannot regulate independent expenditures. Well, it seems to be a problem we're facing now where you have on both sides of the aisle people who are billionaires, and they don't give the money directly to the candidate. They run it themselves. I'd say those are all problems. And I've been on the side where I think campaign finance laws are okay. But it's important to know that there's a good argument on the other side. So what do the people think who think they're not okay? First, they do not think. It's a good idea to say, well, it's about money, not speech. They say, oh, you mean it's about money? Really? Not about speech? So you can regulate it? You try running a political campaign without money. Try it. Yeah, I haven't ever heard of you, <laughs> and nor will anyone else. So if you want your ideas around, you have to have money. So they say, of course it's part of speech. Of course it is in that context. Then. They appealed to the same idea that I believe Learned Hand had, which was don't get into the business of trying to say how much money is too much or how much speech is too much. And I think he did tell that to Ronnie Dworkin, who was his law clerk. And he used to say that. And why not? because he said they'll outwit you every time. You see what Congress does with these. They'll write themselves into office. And you won't even know. <laughs> and you, you, you know, they're, they're not stupid. And they, they, will, they will do it. Don't get into that business. And if you're gonna say how much campaign finance money is too much, you're in it. You're in that business. So, I, I mean, that's not, those are not bad arguments. And, uh, but I don't want to convince you they're right. <laughs> because actually, I was on the other side. And so the the argument the other way, which um, is, look, you have somebody giving $5 and then somebody else gives $5 million. Are you kidding? I mean, who's the person who is going to get the access to the politician? Who's the one who's going to be in his office when it comes time to vote? And what's going to happen to the $5 contributor? Forget it. I mean, forget it. And yet the purpose of the First Amendment is, in part, to allow people who have ideas and want to support the Republicans or the Democrats through their speech and through the money that enables speech to transmit the idea so that it has an impact on the government, so it isn't purely theoretical. So how can you start saying the five million dollar man can do it and the five dollar man can't do it, please? So I'll tell you to me, "Hey, you're in the business of saying how much is too much. I say, you're right, you're right. Is that a great business? No, I had to say in the Vermont case, I thought there was a limit of $100, that was the maximum contribution. So I, I said, well gee, for $100 you can't even buy a cup of coffee and, uh, <laughs> well, you see the idea? I had to say, no, that's too, too low. It's gonna write the people who are incumbents into office. How do I know? See the problem? but I say the game is worth the candle. Because if you don't do it, you are going to discover that either there won't be a transmission belt for the $5 people who are the vast majority, or they'll think there isn't, even if there were. And either way, the democratic process is gone and are hurt seriously. And so if you don't have it, if you don't let Congress act, because you say the Constitution prevents it. What are you doing to the basic democracy that that Constitution creates and that the First Amendment is part of? Oh, that's my argument. But I want you to see, primarily, that there are two sides to the argument. And I hope also you think my side is correct.
1: <laughs> the Court said in Citizens United, we are confident that this decision will have no impact on Americans' confidence in the integrity of American democracy. Was the Court wrong?
2: I wrote a I dissent. I joined the dissent in that case, so obviously I'm going to think they're wrong. It <laughs> doesn't prove they're wrong, but I think it's good evidence.
1: Well, you're a pragmatist. What has the effect of Citizens United been on America? Well, so you democracy?
2: tell me. I'm not out there. I'm in this ivory tower. I'm, I'm up there with my <laughs> computer and my uh, you know, word processor and these books and briefs and so forth. From what I read, it has not been a happy effect, but that's just one you know, I have no stand, I have no particular, people here know more about it than I do.
1: Well, you read the briefs and you mentioned the McCutcheon case. Why was that important and why did the briefs... Because they
2: mentioned- went further, or the majority went further in saying what Congress could not regulate. That's why. Uh, and uh, the, the arguments are, are uh, full, more fully developed. I found that a more important case and a more interesting case.
1: And it sounds like you would go in the opposite direction and overrule or modify Buckley to say that expenditures as well as contributions may be regulated. Well,
2: that's a different. There are many, many things. You know what Congress has enacted in respect to the uh, independent expenditure? I do know. You want to know the answer?
1: Yes, very much.
2: Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. So, first, you'd need a statute. Before you have any question of whether a statute is unconstitutional, there has to be a statute. And there there, there are many ways. There are many ways that you might try other forms of of, uh, regulating campaign expenditures. And I think, but I'm not an expert, that there are also many ways Congress hasn't tried.
1: Ultimately. How important is it for Congress to act? Right now, the the Democratic question of the moment is fake news on Facebook. And they're saying it's affected the Brexit vote and the American election. But the Constitution says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say Mark Zuckerberg shall make no law. So is this not a problem for the courts but for Congress? And should Congress solve this problem?
2: That's a different question. I mean, Congress, it says Congress shall make no law. Then the 14th Amendment says the state shall make no law, and that comes right through. It doesn't say that, but it's been read to be applying to government in general. And, and you are saying that, uh, well, what about a private person? I mean, private persons all the time. Uh, I, can, I can tell my guests, so I don't, but I might tell my children, you're not gonna say this at the dinner table. Doesn't do any good, by the way, but nonetheless, uh, 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 private, it, it applies to government actors.
1: But it, it does not apply to private actors, and therefore, where, uh, if, if there's a problem with the platforms, will the solution have to come not from the courts, but from Congress or the states or from other regulations?
2: Here, you're asking me a question that I have no better an opinion on than any other person in this room. Or even if I did, I wouldn't say it. The one thing I did learn, which I don't, that I would learned working there is matters for Congress are up to Congress. And above all, and at first, Congress. Second, every other citizen of the United States. And last, me. (laughs) Because uh, I can get myself into a lot of trouble seeing what Congress can do and can't do. That's up to them, and it's up to other people to to decide.
1: Okay, we have to get your jurisprudence and the First Amendment on the table in our remaining time. What are the, uh, you began by saying there's this bipartisan agreement about the importance of protecting hate speech under the First Amendment.
2: Well, I think those you tell me, you've read the cases. I think if you go back uh, uh, for the last hundred years or so, you will see case after case and holding after holding that says do not discriminate, Uh, particularly you can't, don't have a law that discriminates on the basis of the person's viewpoint even though that viewpoint may be very bizarre and very undesirable. Now, don't you think that's what they say?
1: They absolutely say it. That's all right, that's all I'm saying. However, <laughs> a new series of polls that the Stanton Foundation and the Knight Foundation have commissioned show that undergraduates believe that that's the wrong balance and that when it comes to a clash between equality and dignity on the one hand and hate speech and free speech on the other, you should protect dignity rather than free speech. So should the First Amendment be reinterpreted?
2: What I uh, thought was wonderful about what Derek Bach did when he was president of Harvard is uh, some students hung a Confederate flag out the window, and he said, that's childish, it's unpleasant, it's just they're just doing it to show off, and they have a right to do it. Okay? Now let me tell you why. And there was a good educational experience there. So I think that's why we have this Kennedy Institute. I think that's why you have the Constitution Center, and that's why I think that's, and most people, I think everybody in public life will think that. The the most important thing we can do is is, uh, uh, teach the next generation and the generation after that. Uh, Why? Why these values have developed in this country? And so uh, I'm sure, whatever it is, uh, you know, there, there we are. You have to explain it, and we won't have it. And the, that's what, what, I, what I tell the—Duck uh, Lincoln, I tried—my my, my wife said that she will give each of our grandchildren $20 uh, when they memorize the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, know, one's done it, and, and uh, the other, I said, look, the key, the key thing here, that's what I was talking about before, See, so think think of one of the reasons if I can remember it, four, first four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition, all men are created equal, everybody. Uh, now we are engaged in that war, to, a great civil war, to see, thank you, <laughs> to see if that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure, so when people quote to me that Lincoln might have fought that civil war even as he said, if it wouldn't free the slaves, though he certainly wanted to free the slaves, I think why could he have thought that? And the answer was if you go back into history and see what did they think they were doing, the founders, they were actually trying to put the Declaration of Independence, those two notions, into practice. And that was an amazing thing then because they were the only people around doing it. The rest were like kings, you know, and, and, and what they thought of, these sophisticates in England and in France, they thought, oh, it sounds good on paper. It sounds good on paper. Sure, it's brilliant. Those are those uh, professor-like people over in the salons, you know, saying this kind of stuff. And uh, it'll never work. It'll never work. Read what Washington wrote. He wrote letters on this and said, it's an experiment. We want to show them it will work, and we're going to. And Lincoln is thinking, of course, as as I said before, if this nation falls apart, those skeptics over there were right, and the experiment didn't work. So that's what I want to say to the students. Hey, it's still an experiment. And you better learn a few things. If you come to this point of view uh, after lowing everything about it, fine. Okay, that's your right. But I'd like you at least to know a lot more about the history of this country and who lives here and the different views that we have and that we've tried to cooperate and we're trying and you know all that kind of stuff that you learn and used to learn in 12th grade civics. And I learned in the 5th grade where we'd have a... a Mrs. we would, would, would get five of us in groups of five and we'd have to work on projects together and we'd only get one grade, so you had to listen to what those other kids were saying. And, and uh, uh, yeah, that's right. It's called cooperation. It's trying to get together with all that kind of thing. So they learn all that and stick with their view. Okay, I respect it, but not till they learn.
1: What's the story of the First Amendment that you want all Americans to learn?
2: That we are 320 million people who have decided that we are going to get together and run ourselves by ourselves, and to do that, we think it is important that you respect all points of view. Not respect them, but allow them to be expressed, even if they're, my God, that. Because that's better than having somebody up there who's going to tell you what you can say and what you can't. Because human beings who tell you that can make mistakes, too. And before you decide you want somebody up there to stop the people you disagree with, you better start thinking of how would you like somebody up there who thinks you're saying the wrong thing. Because what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. A little corny, but that's the basis of law. <laughs> and uh, uh, there we are. So uh, that's uh, down. up to them.
1: And um how do we apply this amendment in an age of new technologies? You've written about violent video games, and how, and how can we take the framers' values and put them into the age of Google and Facebook and video games? No,
2: I, please, you know, I'm, I don't know. And those cases come up slowly. I've learned two things. First, you're up the video games. That was a law in California that said before a 16-year-old can go in and get a triple X violent video game, he has to have his parents' permission. I have to admit, I did think that did not violate the First Amendment. But there we are. My colleagues disagreed. Okay. So, 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 so uh, uh, the answer comes, Tocqueville is good on this. And this is how it will be answered. I don't have an answer. But Tocqueville said, and I think it's worth thinking about with these problems of privacy and speech, where they sometimes conflict with problems like the Internet. He said, when I come to America, the first thing I do is I'm still on the ship and I hear the clamor. And what he's thinking about is he means everybody's shouting at each other. Well, shouting isn't so good. But his basic point is they're debating everything under the sun. And when we have a new technology like this, go look at privacy. Privacy used to be protected under 20 different areas of the law. And one of the best protections of privacy was called failing memory, which I understand a lot about. And, the, 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 uh, you know, the, you'd see the, they'd see you in the village square, somebody, he'd forget. And uh, that isn't true now. The computer doesn't. The video doesn't. It doesn't forget, and it doesn't forgive. And so what do we change? Well, Tocqueville is saying the way that people will decide it is they'll start discussing it. They'll discuss it in newspaper articles and journal articles. We'll have the Bar Association, you know, with its uh, 300,000 members and 500,000 committees. And they they will go and start talking about it. There'll be the sheriffs, and there'll be the police chiefs, and there'll be the ACLU, and there will be teachers' unions, and there will be the this and the that, and they'll start discussing it. And out of this discussion will come all kinds of experimentation. There will be people in different states who try things. There will be people who try administrative rules. Some of those won't work. They'll try something else and uh, 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 they'll then maybe pass a law and then it's best when we come in, Not not always, but normally it is best when we come in last. And our job is not to say what is the great solution. Our job is to say whether the solution that others have come up with through the legislative process is consistent with this document And this document by and large does not tell people what to do. It creates a framework for government and certain limits. And we have the job of saying, does this exceed the limits? Is it beyond the frontier? I used to say our, our job is uh, it's like uh, what I used to listen to when I was a child. It was called, I think, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. He would patrol the frontier with Canada and Alaska, and it was cold up there. And sometimes it's difficult. You know, is abortion on this side or is it on that side? But that isn't saying, well, it's just the frontier. And uh, for the most part, it leads to the democratic process the job of saying, how do we solve problems like yours? Just (laughs) limits that you can't go and exceed. They'll come in last, why? Because people have more information. They will have tried different things. we will have a broader perspective. We will be told by the lawyers. This was tried here, that was tried there, and all those amicus briefs and everything, and parties, briefs, they'll they'll refer us to things. We'll get it. We'll look it up on the internet. (laughs) We can read the articles. they shouldn't be called brief because they're not briefs, <laughs> they're not brief. but anyway, you see, that's the process.
1: So this last question is about the democratic process, and Tocqueville and Madison believed that when citizens engaged in the process you talked about, they would slowly deliberate over time and collect information from different sources, and eventually their views would be reflected in law. But now we govern by tweet and filter bubbles, and echo chambers, and people are segregating themselves into little enclaves where they're only hearing people who agree with themselves. So how can you be optimistic that the public reason that Tocqueville and Madison thought was necessary for the survival of American democracy can flourish?
2: Well, think of a newspaper. A newspaper was a broker. It put together a staff of journalists and uh, advertisers and a reading public. And there were different newspapers. But basically what a newspaper was doing was saving me and you time. Because some we grew to trust. And we would say, I'll look at them in the morning, and I'll look at some articles, all right? And uh, uh, I, I trust this editor, so if he puts it right on the top of the front page, I think it's more important. And if he puts it on page 20, less important. And uh, I will, it'll help me save time. No, I say, do you think people in the future won't want to save time? Do you think they won't want to grow trusting more, trusting less? I trust this editorial judgment more. Maybe it'll be on the Internet. But there will be names that guide people towards things they respect more. And so if you assume a reasonably educated population, I don't see why eventually we would not have that function served on the Internet. I mean, people might get tired of seeing sort of weird things. Uh, I've gotten a little tired of it. (laughs) But maybe they won't, okay? Then the experiment fails. But uh, since I think, you know, I'm pretty optimistic. I say that to, you know, grandchildren, children, that generation. Figure it out. Figure it out. Your generation is going to want to save time, too. Your generation is going to want to have a democracy too. Your generation is going to want to be more uh, uh, fact-based than just some theory, and uh, so you figure it out, and I don't see why they won't. So of course I'm optimistic, and maybe there isn't much choice about whether you're optimistic or not, but I am optimistic. I don't see why they won't figure it out. And you talk to, talk to some of those groups. You know. Uh, I'm very biased, but I don't think my grandchildren are so bad, <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, uh, they, uh, I'm very optimistic, and you have your center, and they have this, and there are like 50 other things elsewhere, and we do still have schools, and we, we, we do uh, uh, come around eventually, and, uh, well, okay, I may be stupid, but I'm optimistic about it.
1: What's the, what's the one thing about the First Amendment you want the audience to read, to learn and educate themselves?
2: The first thing, read the text of the First Amendment. <laughs> and then you could read, your, you've written a book about Brandeis, I'm in mean, to read about Brandeis, read about homes, read these great opinions, and think about them, that's all.
1: Justice Breyer, for your optimism, your passion, and your dedication to the future of the First Amendment, thank you so much. Please join me in thanking Justice Breyer. Thank you for being up uh-huh. the
2: uh-huh.
0: Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Ugana Eze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by me, Lana Ulrich, and Ugana Eze. The Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.